0: The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at MHBible.org. Good morning, church family. So good to see you, to have you here worshiping with us today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the book of Genesis, and we're going to be starting in chapter 13 today. We are going through the life of Abraham. We are a few weeks in now. If you're not sure, if you're new to the Bible, Genesis is the very first book, so just find the very first book of the Bible. We're going to begin at chapter 13 today as we continue our study through the life of of Abraham. I had dinner this past week with another pastor and his wife who have been serving in California. They're not directly here in the Bay Area but have been serving a ministry for over 40 years. And it was just a really great time as we just got to sit there and connect and talk and, and they asked me a, a, an interesting question which is not the first time someone has asked me this, right? Because I, I my family we moved here this summer um, to take up the role of being the lead pastor here at the church and they asked me this question. They said how "How?" How did you know? How did you know that this was where God was calling you to? Right. And that's that's a very good question. Right. How how did you know? And sometimes I feel like not always, but sometimes when people ask this question, they're like bracing for this like dramatic story. Right? And I wish I had it. I wish I could tell you that the first time I came on campus, there was like an audible voice from the Lord. And then like a rainbow came down from heaven and it landed right on the congregation, right? And that it was like, there was like flashing signs. This is where God has called, right? I wish that it was that obvious, right? Because that would be an amazing story. And Once in a while, God does work in such an obvious way like that. But for me, as I think about how did we know, well, it was the culmination of 15, 20, 25, 30 little things that all added up and pointed for us in the same direction. And it was by that that we knew this is where God is taking us and can move forward with confidence. See, sometimes in life, we look for the big thing of God, right? We look for the audible voice, the neon sign flashing on the highway of what we should do, of how God wants us to live. Yet oftentimes, and I think more often than not, it's the little decisions, the little things that we do day in and day out that add up to being significant factors later on throughout our whole life. And this morning, as we look at the life of Abraham, I want us to look at four questions that we will all face in life. And these are not questions that are like mind-shattering, earth-blowing, but these are questions that if we follow them correctly. If we answer, depending on our answers, it will dramatically shape our life, not necessarily today, but certainly in the years to come, depending on how we answer these questions. So Genesis chapter 13, if you remember last week, they went down to Egypt, which they should not have done. He, he lied about the identity of his wife and he was sent away by Pharaoh to go back. So chapter 13, verse one, picks up the story. It says this, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. This is like the ancient Near East way of saying like he had homes, he had cash, and his stock market portfolio was also very impressive, right? This is a well-rounded, very wealthy man now at this point. Verse 3. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. This first question that we will all face is this, will we go back to God or go our own way? In life, will we go back to God or will we go our own way? The series, the the season that takes place right before this, as we just briefly mentioned, was a utter catastrophe for Abram. It was filled with sin and deceit and lies. and, And it was just a huge downfall for him. It was not something that God approved of. And yet he finds himself and what does he do as a result of his sin? he comes back to God. The geography here is important, right? Not that in our lives we like, have this thing that we have to go to a specific place to find repentance. But for Abram, it mentions specifically his journey, that he goes back to, to Bethel, which is, literally means the house of God. He goes back to this place and notice twice it says that he went there where he had been in the beginning to the place where he had made an altar at the first. It's saying, this is where Abram worshiped God. And now what is he doing? He's retracing his steps. He's going back up from Egypt towards the land and he's going exactly where until finally verse five. And there, or verse four, excuse me, there he called upon the name of the Lord. See, for the first time since he left Egypt, we see a record here of Abram calling out to God of him worshiping God. We had no sign of that in Egypt. And here he's moving back as a result of his mistakes and he is going back to God. See, what do you tend to do when you mess up? It's an important question that you have to ask yourself because here's the reality is we all do it all the time. And what our pattern of response is to our mistakes, to our failure, to our sin will have a significant impact on our life over the long run. See, there's some natural responses that in our sinful self that we tend to want to follow as a result of sin in our lives. Some few natural responses. One natural response to sin is we would rather just ignore our sin. Right? We, we just want to ignore it. We feel the Holy Spirit prompt us. We feel maybe a guilt over our sin and we just push it aside and do the exact same thing. That's a response that's natural to, to try and push it aside. A second way that sometimes that we can naturally respond towards sin is we get defensive. We get defensive, right? We, we point out the wrongdoing in someone else. When someone highlights something in us, we'd be like, well, yeah, well, what about this in you? Right? We, we get defensive, we minimize the impact. Right? Oh, well, well, it actually wasn't that bad. Not that many people got hurt. It wasn't that selfish of a decision. And actually it could have been worse. We get defensive right, when we are confronted with our sin. And a third way that we naturally respond to our sin is that so often we excuse our sin. Right? We have excuses for why we've done what we've done. I was just, I was tired. I was stressed, or my favorite is we blame it on our parents. It's the way I was brought up, right? It's just how my family, our, my family is just angry people. We're just naturally impatient people, right? We, we blame it. We give excuses to others and we deflect off our sin. But I love what Abram models here for us is that when we are hit in the face as he was, right? He has the Egyptian king come in and confront him of his sin. He's smacked in the face with his sin. What does he do? But he goes right back to God. And as followers of Jesus, when we find ourselves confronted with our sin, this is the very best thing for each and every one of us to do as well. To take our sin in our mess and our mistakes and go right back to God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, a well-known verse, says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, the reality is, is that confession sometimes in church is reduced like this thing that we do the very first time we place our faith in Jesus, right? We confess our sins to become Christians, and yes, we do. But in our walk with Jesus, a confession of sins needs to be a regular routine and habit in our life. Because all of us are faced with the question, what happens when we make mistakes? Because all of us do it. And the reality is that's nothing to be ashamed of. I hate to break it to you, but the church is not the place for perfect people. If you are imperfect, if you've made mistakes, if you mess up, this is exactly the right place for you. The church is not the place for perfect people. It's for people who turn to God when they realize how imperfect they are. This last week, I I literally, it was Thursday, and I was coming in Thursdays, my, my kind of big prep day. I prep throughout the week, but Thursday, it's my main task. And I sit down and I'm reading through this passage and God starts to tink in my mind. And he's like, you need to text your wife and say you were sorry for how you treated her this morning. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I'm a, and, and the Holy Spirit in my head was like, are you kidding me? You're going to preach about this and you're not going to do it yourself? And I was like, dang it, he cornered me, didn't he, on that one? I text him, I'm like, I'm sorry, I was, I was short, I apologize, I love you. Right, that's the response, but what did what even I want to do in that moment, I'm a pastor studying this, I want to be like, no, no, don't, no, that, that is what I need to do. Because that's the proper response to sin, is to confess it, not to excuse it, not to minimize it, not to defend it, but to confess our sin. And when we make mistakes, like Abram went running back to God, we need to go running back to God and confess our sin to him. So he finds himself back now in the land. Verse 5, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen's herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and parasites were dwelling in the lands. Then Abram said to Lot, "'Let there be no strife between you and me "'and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, "'for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you. "'Separate yourself from me. "'If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. "'Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left.'" And Lot lifted up his eyes, and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled amongst the cities in the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord." Now, Abram in dividing up, right? So there's this problem. They both are too wealthy for the land they live on. Right? This is a good problem to have, right? Some of us are like I wish I had those problems, Lord. Please give it. How do I divide up my money? I just have so much of it, right? This is a good problem for Abram, and he is under zero obligation to treat Lot this way, right? It's specifically in describing Lot, which is his nephew, in describing Lot's relationship to him and always is like and Lot was with him. Lot was with him meaning this, the lot has wealth for one reason alone. It's because of Abram Lot is wealthy because of his association with Abram. And Abram is the eldest. Abram is the leader. Abram could have easily been like, yo, pipsqueak, get out of here. Go over there. He has no obligation to him, but he allows Lot to choose for himself. And the emphasis for Lot and in, in how he picks where he goes is all on what he sees. You notice that there? It says that Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered. This is reminiscent, and it specifically talks about here, just like the garden of the Lord. In fact, the imagery here of Eve looking at the tree is very, very similar as Lot looking at the Jordan Valley. Right, The woman saw the tree, and her eyes were brought to it that she fell into the first sin. Just like Lot saw this thing and was pulled to it like this magnetic pull. It also says that it was like... Egypt. He saw this, what he thought this taste of the good life was like when they were down in Egypt. So he journeyed east out of the lands. Now already in Genesis, even in the first 13 chapters, whenever someone heads east, it's kind of like a red flag. Like that's not very good. My apologies to those of you who are from the east coast, but biblically the west coast is far superior. I apologize. I didn't make it up. It's in, it's in the Bible, right? But already, when when they left the Garden of Eden, the angel was put up on the east side of the garden. Cain, after murdering his brother, left and went east. They gathered in the east to build the Tower of Babel. and And now Lot moves east. This is all in the first 13 chapters of the Bible. You're kind of like, ooh, not very good. And all that. But he moves close to Sodom. Notice that he's in the cities and then he moves his tent as far as Sodom. And we get these glimpses here in verse 13 of the reputation of what Sodom was like at the time. See that the responses of Abram and Lot help us think of the second question which is this, will our lives be characterized by generosity or greed? Will our lives be characterized by generosity or by greed? See, Lot had his definition of what this good life looked like. And he was drawn with his eyes. He saw the dollar signs. He looked out at this flush, fertile valley. And he thought of all the wealth that could continue to come in and could continue to grow to him. And he knew the reputation of Sodom. He knew the godlessness of the people that he was traveling to go make his living by. And it didn't matter to him. His eyes were drawn to the wealth that could come for him. What was Abram's motivation? What what was Abram's focus through this time? Hebrews chapter 11 actually helps us here, looking back at Abram's life. It says this in Hebrews 11, verses nine and 10. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. Get this, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Lot is looking for earthly pleasure and comfort. Abram's focus was on eternity. His eyes were not here on the present, but what God had for him in the future. See, when we think about generosity and greed, sometimes we we reduce it too much. Greed is not just about having or making a lot of money. Because notice, both of them in this passage, both of them are exceedingly wealthy, It's not that that Abram is poor and Lot is rich, so then Lot must be the greedy one and Abram not. No, they, they are both extremely blessed by God. But I love the definition that one pastor talked about when he talked about this passage. He said this, Greed is not defined by what I have or want, but by the price I'm willing to pay to get it. Greed is not just what I have or want, but by what I'm willing to pay to get it. See, Lot was willing to do whatever it took to get wealthy, including as he knew to associate with evil, to leave the promised land that God had called Abram to. He's now out of the land and he's journeyed east and he is going to do whatever it takes in his mind to do the accumulation of wealth. See, it's shocking here, this pull of Lot and the pull of Abram. And, I have, and we have to ask ourselves when looking at their lives and their choices is this, what are we looking at? Lot was looking at all the opportunities of the world. Abram was looking towards heaven. What are we in our lives? What are we looking at? What are we focused on? See, because what you look at, what, you, what pulls your heart, what pulls your attention, what grabs hold of you and won't let go? Because see, whatever we spend the most time, whatever our hearts are pulled to is naturally where we will spend the course of our life living. If our hearts are drawn to eternity, to the things of God, that's where we will spend our time, money, and energy. But if our hearts are pulled towards the things of this earth, that's naturally where we will go as well. And it depends on what we are focused, what the the aim of our life is on. See, we we naturally think of this when, when thinking where we look is where we naturally go in life. If you've ever taught your kids how to ride a bike, you help teach them that you go and you look where you want to go, not where the obstacles are, right? I remember when I was young, I did not do very well at this, which is ironic now because I ride my bike almost every day, but I struggled a lot with it when I was a little kid. And when I was a kid, uh, my parents lived right next door to the school that they worked, which had a very large parking lot. Like if you take the whole property of this place, it was you know several basketball courts were on this big blacktop parking lot. And that's where I learned to ride my bike without training wheels. And in the midst of each one was a few basketball rooms. Right? So there's poles and a light pole just right there. 99.99% of this thing is just blacktop. And what is the one thing that as a five-year-old Michael that I stare at while I'm riding my bike? The pole right? And I have all this blocked up in the world, but what am I doing? I'm looking right at the pole. I'm looking right at the pole. My parents are yelling, don't look at the pole, move away from the pole. I'm looking right at the pole until I smash into the pole and go crashing and think this bike thing isn't for me. It's ruined, right? Because it's gotten my way. My eyes were drawn to it and I couldn't help but walk that way. If our hearts, if our eyes are drawn to the things that this world promises, Because here's the thing, the promise of the world is so often the same as the promise of God. It promises you wealth and significance and impact and power. And we want those things and we will do whatever it takes to go after that. And if that's where we spend our life, then suddenly we've lived lives of greed and not generosity. That we walked away from God and that we followed after our own way. Now, for many people, God brings those positions, those wealth as well. So again, it's not to automatically assume that if we find ourselves with money that we are living in sin. But only you know the answer is where is your heart in it? Are you looking to the things of this earth to bring fulfillment or are you looking to what is to come? Are you looking to Jesus for him to bring fulfillment? Because as we look to one or the other, it determines if our lives are characterized by greed Or by generosity. So Lot moves out. Abram is now left in the land. Verse 14 The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre which are at Hebron and there he built an altar to the Lord. The third question that we will all face is this, will we trust God even when we don't see the answer? Will we trust God even when we don't see the answer? Right, and so Abram's gone through this thing. He's separated from Lot. Lot's gone here. Abram moves and he's living in the land of Canaan. This is the promised land that is currently inhabited by other people. He doesn't own property here. Abram has no idea how God will fill his promise. And yet again, God shows up and makes him a promise. And every time I feel like that God like expounds on it a little bit more. Notice that, that Lot was driven by his eyes and his desire. What does God say to Abram? Lift up your eyes. This is what I'm going to do for you. All the lands that you see, I will give to your offspring forever. I will give this to you. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Now, if you miss either of the last two weeks, Abram is an old man in his seventies or eighties by this point and has no kids. And God is making him these promises that here's this land that you own none of and other people live in. You're gonna have more kids than you have any idea from you and you don't see how any of it will be answered. See, Abram finds himself right in the middle between the promise of God and the answer of God. God made him this promise, and he hasn't experienced the answer, and he's waiting right in the middle. And that's so hard because what happens when we are in that place is all we have to do and all we can do is wait on God, right? All we can do in that place is wait on God, And I don't know about you, but most people that I know, including myself, that's hard to do. That's a difficult place to live life. But one of the most common themes when you start to read through the stories of who God has used in scripture are people who had to spend significant amounts of their lives simply waiting on God. Joseph waited for over 13 years, imprisoned and enslaved before God fulfilled the promise that he had made to him. King David was anointed as king to be the next king over Israel and waited 15 years before he actually became the king. Scripture is filled with people who had to wait through long seasons of God giving a promise and waiting for God to show the answer to that. And we've all been in these seasons in life, haven't we? where we felt like God is calling and, and we've prayed to God for something. And we expect, because we're like, hey, if I was God and someone asked me a good question, I would give him the answer right away. right? I, I wouldn't keep sending him to voicemail, I would answer the phone and I would tell him what's up. And God seems to keep hitting reject call day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. I know I've shared with you before, this is where my wife and I found ourselves for a period of years as we were seeking where God would have us go to next. We felt like God was moving us somewhere we didn't know where. And I wish I could tell you, oh, it was great. Every single day, I just trusted God and it was no problem at all. No, there were days where I was angry. I was frustrated because I felt like God owed me. God, why are you making me wait? And for some of you, you may be in a season right now where you feel like all you can do is wait for God to answer. Maybe it's a relationship situation, a living situation. Maybe it's an answer to prayer that you've been praying for for a long time. I just wanna encourage you this morning, don't waste your season of waiting. Don't waste your season of waiting because here's what God so often does in scripture. If you think back to your own life, here's what God so often does. He uses your season of waiting to prepare you for the answer that he has for you. He uses your waiting to prepare you for what he has. And if he gave it to you right when he asked you, you wouldn't be ready for it. You couldn't handle what he had for you. And he's putting you through this season of waiting and waiting so that you would cultivate this trust, this dependence. And that is hard. And it's uncomfortable. And it's not easy to live there. And you want to get to the answer. You want to get to the end. But in your desire to move forward, to get to the answer, don't Waste your seasons of waiting. It's a time to lean in, to trust God, to depend more on him, to seek after him more. You see here, God affirms to Abram again, these are all the promises that I've made to you. And Abram must look at him and go, and how in the world is that going to be? He has no idea. And he has to learn to trust God when he has no idea what the answer will be. And so do we as well in our seasons of waiting. Well, chapter fourteen takes this this sharp turn. And I'll summarize for us. Verses 1 through 10 is basically a summary of a battle. And if you read through there, it kind of sounds like Pokemon characters, some of the names, all right? So I'm not going to read it because I went to Bible school, but I still do not know how to pronounce these names correctly. My Hebrew professors are shaking their heads somewhere. I'm sorry, all right? But to summarize, there were four kings in the east and five kings in the west. The four kings in the east ruled the five kings in the west. They had to pay tribute, which they did for 12 years. Then they decided, hey, we're not going to do this anymore, so what happened? happens. The kings from the east come and invade. And it tells us all these different battles. We have a map if you're a visual person. I think we have a map. I don't know if you can read it very well. If we have it, maybe, maybe going once, going twice. There it is, right? And so the line on the right is the red line coming in, and it marks all these different battles, seven different battles in total. As they go down, all the way down, then they circle back up the other side. It's there to set up the context for us of what happens in verse 11. Chapter 14, verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their possessions and went their way, verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Now remember last time we saw Lot, he was living outside Sodom. Now where is he living? In Sodom, right? He's moved, so he's now right in Sodom and he's taken away with all these other things. Verse 13, Verse 13, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And He divided his forces against them. By night, he and his servants and defeated them, and pursued them to Hoba, north of Damascus. Then he brought back to all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with all his possessions and the women and the people. So there's this battle that takes place, right? And Abram is told about, "Hey, your nephew has been taken." And what could Abram's response very easily been? Well, he shouldn't have moved to Sodom, the big dummy. Right, that was his decision, he went after it, it was stupid from the beginning and now he found himself not just outside, but inside him. He did this to himself, why would I risk myself, my possessions, my people to go and save this guy for the stupid mistakes he's done? But no, what does Abram do? He goes and he pursues them. Dan would have been about a 50 mile journey north of where he was, so it's not like they're next door. He goes with these men, pursues them and gets Lot back. See the fourth question, that we have to ask ourselves is this, will, will we use our power to serve others or ourselves? Will we use our power to serve others or ourselves? Abram could have been like, yeah, I've got a fighting force of 318 trained soldiers and that's to protect me, not to bail out my family from their stupid mistakes. Right? I, I, he didn't owe Lot anything. He could have said, no, I'm, I'm just gonna accumulate all this wealth to use it to serve and to save myself. He's under no obligation. In fact, by going and doing so, he actually puts himself at risk, right? He puts his own livelihood, his own possessions, his own men, even himself at physically and at risk of bodily harm in order to do what is helpful to Lot's. See, he goes and he serves Lot's rather than just using his power to save and to serve himself. This is a concept seen throughout all of scripture that one of the things that it looks like as we follow and pursue after God is we recognize that all that God has blessed and given us with is not so that we can just sit back and enjoy it ourselves, but that we can use it to serve others as well. And sometimes people can, it's easy to sit back and think, wow, God has so blessed me. I'm just gonna sit back and enjoy it for me. And God always blesses that we would serve other people. This isn't just a thing for Abram. This is a thing that is true for us, is that our salvation is worked out and evidenced in how we serve and live our lives towards other people. A well-known passage in in the book of James, James chapter one, verse 27, just the first part of the verse says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Now, a lot of you know the rest of this verse, but try not to think of it. If you were to take this verse and to walk around Morgan Hill, to go down to Gilroy, to go up to San Jose and ask just the average person what they think the answer to this is based on the Christians that they know. Hey, you know Christians. What is the answer? What is important? What, what is the purity of religion for a Christian? What would some of their answers be? What would they say is the most important thing to Christians? Some might talk about, well, maybe it's going to church on Sunday or reading the Bible. Some you might find more skeptical and say it's about getting money from others or accumulating political power, right? You would get a wide range of answers. But what does Scripture say is pure and undefiled religion before God? The rest of the verse says this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I think when most people think of Christianity and what it looks like, they don't think of, wow, Christians have have been blessed by God's this to go and serve the most vulnerable and the least of these in the communities around them, right? God says religion that is predefined is this, you take what God has blessed you with and you serve those who don't have it. The widows and the orphans would have been the lowest of the load, that downcast in their society and say, that's who the Christians go and they serve. See, too many times as followers of Jesus, we are intellectually overweight, right? We spend our time listening to good sermons, studying our Bible, and we fill up our heads with all of this knowledge. But it's really easy sometimes as Christians to think back that what God wants us to know is to accumulate knowledge because that, doesn't really push us outside of our comfort zone. But so often we've filled our heads with knowledge, but our lives haven't followed what that knowledge teaches us. As followers of Jesus, we must get the gospel from our head into our hearts and into our hands. We must say, okay, this is the truth of God. It must impact me to my deepest soul level and it must be evidenced in how I live my life. We must take what God has blessed us with because all of us, if you are a Christian, God has blessed you so enormously. God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ and we have to ask ourselves, okay, how am I going to use this blessing to serve others? How am I gonna use what God has given me not to serve myself, but to serve one another? See, that's the essence of what Christian living looks like. My prayer is that we would be people that would have the gospel not just be in our heads, but that it would move to our hearts and lived out in our hands where God has placed us. God, we thank you that you have enormously blessed us in Christ. God, and as we think of these questions, God, they are questions that we will face today, we will face this week. God, will we be people of generosity or greed? How will we respond when we sin? Will we use what you've given us to serve others? Will we trust you even when we don't know what you're doing? God, I pray that you would find us faithful today. Find us faithful this week and following after you. God, we thank you that you are a faithful God to us. Would you help us as we, your children, look to follow after you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.